Well, good morning. Hey, I got good news for you today. I've got three sermons to deliver today to you, okay? So you might as well just forget about getting out on time. We'll get out whenever I say we're going to get out, right? Um, no, really, we're going to start where I had planned to start a couple of weeks ago. But before I get into that, let me just uh, say to you how much my family has appreciated all the love and the grace and the support and the encouragement that you just flooded upon us on January 6th when I shared with you some very personal things from our life. And even beyond that day, there's been cards coming in the mail, emails in my inbox, Facebook messages, and all sorts of things that have just made us feel so loved and cared for by this congregation. And I'm very, very proud to be a part of this church. And I hope that my level of transparency on that day and just just sharing things and getting things out uh, will hopefully create an environment around here that continues where people who walk into this room know that it's okay not to be okay and that this is one of the safest places on planet Earth to say that. Amen? Let's strive for that, all right? So today we are beginning uh, a brand new series that it's uh, still the first of the year, but it's a series that I wanted to start off the year with, and it's called Dangerous Church. And it's based upon this one statement that Jesus said in the Gospels where he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, right? So that makes us scratch our heads a little bit, and we ask this one question. What kind of church did Jesus have in mind? What was his vision? What was his dream of the church? What would so characterize his people that the forces of hell would not have a chance in hell of ever overcoming the church? And so each week what we're going to do is is we're going to look at a couple of key phrases that we're just going to hone in on and drive in on for that given morning. And these key phrases not only ensure the growth of the church, but the longevity of the church until Jesus comes. And here's what I want you to know. Notice the signage up here. The key word at the very end is what? It's us. This is a collective deal. If we're going to fulfill what Jesus wanted for his church to be, For his dream to be realized, it's not a matter of what the ministers do or the elders do. It's what us, the collective body of Christ, does. This is an all-hands-on-deck kind of a deal. All right? I can tell you and I can preach to you until I'm blue in the face what Jesus wants his church to be. But it's no good unless his people are actually willing to embrace it and to be what he's called us to be. So here's today's key phrase, all right? A dangerous church is a church where everybody's welcome. See, it's interesting to see as you go through the ministry of Jesus, you learn something while reading through the Gospels. That the church exists primarily not for those who are on the inside. The church exists primarily for those who are not on the inside yet. For the people who are still on the outside. See, it's fascinating as we read through the Gospels, we we discover quite early on that Jesus was closer to God than any other human being, right? I mean, he even said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Father and I are 
one. Closer to God than any other human being. But yet, who was it that flocked to Jesus the most? People who were the furthest from God. The people who lived the least like Jesus were the ones who were attracted to Jesus the most. The people who the culture would say are the most ungodly were the ones who wanted to be closest to the godliest man who ever lived. And the good news is this, at least in its early stages, this phenomenon continued with the church when the church was born in the book of Acts. In fact, here's what Luke writes about the church in the book of Acts. He says this, they, meaning the church, enjoyed the favor of all the people and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So here's what it looked like. The church is birthed, and people around the church in that culture would say, you know what, I don't necessarily uh, believe everything those people believe because they believe some really interesting things, but I am sure glad they are here. And one by one, young and old, Jew and Gentile, they discovered it's true. Jesus is real. He really does care about me. He can be known, and he wants to change my life. And listen to me. The early church, they lived for this. They gave everything of themselves for this to happen in the lives of people. Because here's the one thing the early church was convinced of. People matter to God. Which people? All people. How much do they matter to God? More than you can possibly imagine. And this is a message that Jesus was going to teach even if it killed him. And guess what? It killed him. Now I've got to address something because it's just part of our sinful nature as fallen creatures. We've all been on the inside of it, and we've all been on the outside of it. And what I'm saying is, is that as human beings, what we like to do is we like to categorize, we like to label people. We've got kind of like the us and them mentality, right? Those of us who get it and those who don't. And you see it in so many different facets in our culture. People do it in the area of politics. You know, there's, there's my political party and who I vote for and my views, and then there's everybody else who doesn't get it, and they're all wrong, and they're kind of on the outside. We're right, we're on the inside. We do it with our sports teams, right? Uh, you show up with a different jersey than this other group of people, and you're, there's going to be a price to pay, especially if you're in their stadium, right? Because you're one of them now. You're not one of us. You're wearing a different color. We even do it in, in churches. It's not just as much to say that I'm a Christian. Well, what brand of Christian are you? What do you believe? What's in your heart of hearts? So there's always just this kind of us-them thing that we do as human beings because we're very, very tribal people. And we always are attracted to and we congregate with those people who are like us, whether it's generationally, whether it's politically, whether it's athletically, whether it's um, socioeconomically. We just gravitate towards people who are like us and everybody else is a them, right? But Jesus comes along. He says, listen, people, there's no us, them. There's just people who matter to God. 
And we're going to read about such a story this morning that conveys this idea that everybody is welcome. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 9. Because here's what we read, the story that plays out. It says here in Matthew 9, 9. And I love the fact that this story is about Matthew and it's written by Matthew. All right? Here's what Matthew says. This is his own personal testimony being penned out for all of us. It says, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. All right? Now, let me just tell you something right now. Back in that culture, we cannot appreciate it where we live here and now, but back in that culture, a tax collector and a rabbi were about as us, them, as you could possibly get. One was considered to be very much on the inside, close to God. The tax collector was seen to be very much on the outside, furthest from God you could possibly get. Okay? Now, in our day, we don't necessarily like the tax people, right? They scare us a little bit. But we don't make moral judgments about people that work for the IRS or people who come in and do audits, right? They're just doing their job. But back in Jesus' time and Jesus' day, the Israelites, they hated tax collectors. They saw them as amoral, treasonous, social climbers. You know how a tax collector got their job? They would make a bid to the Roman government saying, okay, in this region, in this province, I believe I can generate this much tax revenue for the government. And they would put in their bid. And the government would say, okay, you've got the job. Anything you raise above and beyond that that you're going to give to us, you can keep. You can put in your own pocket. So what do you guess tax collectors would do? Oftentimes they would cheat and they would oppress their own people so that they could enrich Caesar, enrich the Roman Empire, and ultimately enrich themselves. Now, if you're familiar with the New Testament at all, you'll always see two groups of people listed together in the Gospels. See if you can fill in the blank for me. There were the tax collectors and the, huh? Sinners. Tax collectors and sinners often grouped very much together. So here's the question. Why do tax collectors get like their own special category? If they're sinners like everybody else, why aren't they just lumped in with all the sinners? And here's what I'm going to tell you why. Tax collectors in that day, again, we don't get this because of the cultural separation, but if you study it, you'll understand. Tax collectors in that day were so despised by the Israelites that they would be Highly, highly offended if you put them in the same category as your everyday ordinary sinner. So they kept them distinguished. There's tax collectors and there's sinners. And guess who does the same thing? Want to take a guess? We do. Don't we all have our own hierarchy of sin? Well, you know, yeah, I've done this and this and this, but at least I'm not one of them. I've never done what she's done. So we feel glad about the fact that there's somebody always below us, a little bit more on the moral totem pole, right? So to be a tax collector in that day and time was to be the lowest of low, okay? So get that through your minds this morning. So Jesus, as he comes across this tax booth, Jesus already has some disciples following him, some men that he called from the fishing industry. And fishermen weren't necessarily considered very high or valued in that culture either, but at least they weren't tax collectors, okay? So they're walking by Matthew's tax booth, and Jesus stops. 
And here's what I think his disciples are predicting he'll say, because it's what an average rabbi would say back then. Gentlemen, look at this guy. This is where a life of corruption and greed will get you. This is what a life separated from God looks like. Make sure you don't become like this guy. So you can imagine how shocked and stunned they were when Jesus stops, puts his hand on Matthew's shoulder, looks him in the eye and says two words that will completely change Matthew's life forever. Follow me. Matthew, I know you. I care about you. I want you on my team. And Matthew, I think you and me working together, we could really, really shake things up around here. And Matthew is speechless. Because when you're a tax collector, you never get an invitation from a rabbi to come be his disciple. It would be like us going to the local penitentiary and saying to the prisoners, hey, come on, we want you to enter into politics. We want you to be a politician. Now, we're used to politicians going to prison, right? But we're not used to to prisoners becoming politicians, right? That's how topsy-turvy this would be. That's how, you know, um, just what a paradox it would be in that day and time. So this is just scandalous, unprecedented, head-scratching, confusing, inexplicable grace, right? Which, by the way, is the only way fallen human beings get connected to a holy God. Amen? So the crowd is just waiting with bated breath to see what Matthew's response is going to be. Because you don't go from the working for the Roman government, patting your own pocket, living the high life, to dropping everything and be a rabbi-following disciple when you come from the life that Matthew's come from. So what's Matthew's response going to be? Is he just going to laugh Jesus off and shrug him off? Is he going to threaten him with an audit? Here's what it says, very plain and simple. And again, this is Matthew's own story written from his own perspective. Matthew 9, 9, follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and what? Followed him. We're not told that he said anything, didn't respond in any way verbally. It's just like he just gets up and he follows Jesus like he's been waiting for this his whole life. Do you know what I love about Matthew's story? Here's what it should teach every single one of us in here this morning. You never know who is just one ask away from being a follower of Jesus, from now being a part of the kingdom of God. Just one ask away. It was just one question given to Matthew. One opportunity, one challenge. And Matthew, in his heart of hearts, it was everything he'd been looking for, and he took the chance. You never know who in your world or my world, no matter how great their life seems, no matter how much money they have, no matter how at the top they might be, they're just one ask away from total life change. But it turns out the story doesn't end there. 
I mean, it would be amazing if the story ended there, but let me tell you this, it gets weirder from here, okay? Because Matthew gets connected to Jesus. He loves Jesus because Jesus took a chance on him. And Matthew begins thinking in his mind, he's like, you know what? I've got some sinner tax collector friends of mine, and they've not been in church in a long, long, long time. But I think they would like Jesus. Because Jesus cared about me, I think he'll care about them. See what he does? He gets this crazy idea to throw a party. I'm going to buy all the food, I'm going to buy all the drinks, I'm going to buy all the party supplies, and I'm going to ask Jesus, Jesus, would you please, 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 please just come to my house, be my guest of honor that night, because I think if I can just get you and my friends in the same room, I really, really think that Jesus can just take over, and he can do for them what he did for me. And I got to tell you what, friends, again, remember, we cannot appreciate this where we live in our day and time, all right? This would have been highly, highly scandalous. It would be like in our day, uh, Billy Graham being invited to the Playboy Mansion, okay? I mean, can you imagine how scandalous and people, I don't know if you should go there, Billy. I mean, just, just imagine that idea. That's what it would have been like. And you know what Jesus' response is? Matthew. I would love to come to your house and just hang out with you and your friends. You just tell me what time to be there, and I will be there. So Matthew gets all excited. He starts to send out the Evites. He posts it on Facebook. He sends out the text messages and the emails to all of his tax collectors, sinful friends. And here's what we read that happens. And again, remember, this invitation list Nobody on this invitation list has ever been invited to eat with a rabbi. But listen to what happens here, Matthew 9, 10. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many, not just a few, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. You would have loved to have been that night. I would love to have been a fly on the wall. Hearing the kind of conversations going on between Jesus and this group of people who had a lot of things in common. Because you know what I think I would have heard that night? I think I would have heard a phrase like this one repeated over and over and over. The, the phrase, oops, sorry. Do you know how I know that? Being in ministry, as long as I've been in, I've had a lot of people who in my presence and in my position will say those words, oops, sorry. They might say a very colorful word. and be like, Oops, sorry, pastor. They might tell an off-color joke. Oops, sorry, preacher. They might start to light up their cigarette and they quickly put it out. Oops, sorry, your holiness. Okay, that was a stretch. You know that was a stretch, right? Just had to make sure you were listening. But over and over, can't you imagine at this party, just all these people saying, oops, sorry, Rabbi, as they talk about all the, the people they ripped off or how they cheated the Roman government out of money that was due to them. But Jesus, listen, Jesus just lets the oops, sorry's go right over his head. He's just loving being there, and he's just loving these tax collectors and sinners. Because you never know 
who it is in your life that's just one ask away from the kingdom of God, just one ask away from a relationship with Jesus. He just sees them as people who matter to God. Which people? All people. How much do they matter? More than you can possibly imagine. Now, put on your shin guards and get your steel-toed boots out because you're about to get dinged, okay? Because I got dinged when I read this. I said, oh, my. Because there's some other people who are watching all this take place from a distance because they would dare not go into a house full of these kinds of people. You want to guess what group it was? Huh? The Pharisees, right? Have you noticed how the Pharisees are always showing up when Jesus is working? Like a bad penny in his ministry. But you know why I'm glad the Pharisees show up? Because when they show up, oftentimes I feel like I'm reading about the times where I show up. Listen to what it says in Matthew 9:11. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why, oh, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? In other words, here's what this question is. Listen, disciples, why is Jesus always, always, always violating the us-them rule? If he keeps eating with people like them, he's going to make religious people like us and like he claims to be look really, really bad. And here's what it says here in Matthew 9, 12. On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, I love how the Pharisees asked this question to Jesus' disciples. But Jesus is like, no, 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 no. I'm not going to let them answer it because they probably won't give you the answer that's the right answer. Let me tell you what the right answer is. And here's the right answer, Pharisees. God does not distinguish between us and them. God has been working, and he's been striving, and he's been planning, and he's been moving in this world so that ultimately one day all it is is just us. And his heart aches for and longs for to be united with and connected with all his lost children. So he says, I came not for the people who are already connected with God. I came for the people who are very, very far and disconnected from God. That's the whole reason I came. See, the Pharisees, let's, let's play pop quiz here. See if you can give me the answer. The Pharisees, when they got together for a party, who do you think they partied with? Other Pharisees. When the Pharisees went to church, who do you think they went to church with? When the Pharisees studied about God and had Bible study and they studied the law, who do you think they were studying with? The Pharisees. And they thought, they thought that God was actually happy about the fact that they didn't let outsiders in. They thought the fact that they excluded sinners and judged sinners actually made them closer to God 
when in reality it impaired their ability to love and drove them further and further and further from the heart of God. So Jesus' actions are putting them on full tilt. And Jesus knows this. But he loves the Pharisee too. And so he explains it to them why he does what he does. And listen, Luke in his gospel shows us the same time Jesus had an encounter with the Pharisees. Listen to what it says here. Luke 15, 1. Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they muttered under their breath very disapprovingly, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Hmm. So what does Jesus do? He does what he does best. He tells a story, a sequence of three stories. And here's the stories that Jesus tells. Jesus says there was a shepherd. He had a hundred sheep. Knew them all by name, counted them all. They were always there until one day, one of them wandered off and he was left with 99. So what's he do as a good shepherd? He leaves the 99 and he goes after the one and he scours the land until he finds that one. Or it's like a woman, he says, who's got 10 coins And she loses one of them, and she turns on the lights, and she gets out her broom, and she sweeps the house, and she turns things upside down until she finds that one coin. It's like a father who's got two sons, and they're the apple of his eye, but one son in a spirit of rebellion and naivety just runs away from home, and the father's heart is just all torn up until the day that son returns back home. And let me tell you something, friends. In all three of those stories, Jesus is not saying that the 99 sheep or the other nine coins or the other son, he's not saying that those things don't matter. What he's saying is, is that when you've lost something you love, you you continue to search for it. You don't stop searching for it just because some of your stuff isn't lost. You keep searching, you keep moving, you keep hoping, you keep praying. How many of you ever been to Disney World? Yeah. When, I, when our family went on our first trip to Disney World about nine years ago, great day, wonderful day, we stayed till the very end because they say you want to watch the fireworks, you want to watch the light show, and it was spectacular as everything Disney does on their grounds. The only problem is, when all that's over, you are trying to mass exodus the park with tens of thousands of other people. And it can get very shoulder to shoulder, right? And somehow, in that exodus, in that chaos, in the shoulder to shoulder, we lost Shelby. You ever been there as a parent? You ever lost a child? Anybody? Or am I the only bad parent in here? Yeah. Man, your heart just sinks. You start imagining all the worst-case scenarios. Who, you know, who's going to snatch them or where they're going to get picked up or, you know. And then you, then you lose, like, all dignity. And you start yelling out your child's name, right? You don't care what people think about you. You just start yelling your child's name, hoping they recognize your voice, hoping they'll make their way back to you. And then when that doesn't work, you start blaming your spouse because they were supposed to be watching them, right? I thought you were watching. No, I thought you were watching her. Tell me this, how do you think my wife would have responded that, that night, that fearful night, if I would have said, oh, Alicia, it's okay, okay, it's okay. Just remember, 
we've still got two of our three kids who are found. <laughs> I know one of them's lost, and that's not optimal. I get it. But let's just go home and celebrate the fact that two of them aren't lost, that they're found. I probably would not have made it out that park alive had I suggested that to my wife. What I'm telling you, folks, is this. There's only two teams. There's the lost, and there's the searchers. The Pharisees made the mistake, which I've made, and good money says you've made this mistake as well, thinking there's a third category. There's the spectators, the watchers, the observers, the critics. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. There's only two people. Those people who are disconnected from God and those people who are connected to God and will do anything, anything to help those disconnected get connected with God. That's the only two kinds of people there are. This man welcomed sinners. Because he couldn't not do that. And what Jesus does for the church to make us dangerous, to make us so that hell doesn't have a chance at all in overcoming the work of Jesus, he leaves for us a template that we can follow in his footsteps. As the rabbi who welcomed people that no other rabbi would welcome. Like a Roman centurion. Like a woman caught in adultery. Like lepers. And prostitutes. And cheats. And the demon-possessed and tax collectors. And even in his few last moments of life on the cross, he welcomes a thief. And guess what? Hell was absolutely powerless against that kind of love that changed lives. And here we are, his church, his body. The goal, the mission, as it always has been, even though we've convoluted it with tradition and different nuances and we've let things become cloudy over 2,000 years of church history. But here's the goal. Pick right back up where Jesus left off. We are his body. We don't get to rethink this whole thing. We just do as he showed us what we are to do. So here's the question. Who is welcome here? And let me tell you what I believe Jesus would say. Believers and unbelievers are welcome. Skeptics and critics and mockers are welcome. Republicans and Democrats and independents 
and Green Party or whatever party you want to affiliate yourself with are welcome. Young people are welcome. Old people are welcome. People who come in a suit and tie and people who come in jeans and shorts are welcome. People who have wrinkly skin, people with tattooed skin, people with wrinkly tattooed skin are welcome. People of every skin color, people of every language, people who are respected in the community, people who the community might say are shady, people who are clean and people who are addicted, people who are very confident every day in their own sexual identity, and people who don't have a day that goes by where they don't question their own identity. Married people, divorced people, single people, struggling married people are welcome. Atheists and humanists and agnostics. In other words, can we just say the one word who's welcome? Everybody is welcome. Welcome to Matthew's party also known as the Church of Jesus Christ. So I'm asking you, because this is an all-hands-on-deck kind of deal, if if you're part of this church, would you please prayerfully ask God to make you part of the search team so that this church can be at least one place in the community where people can enter into the walls of this place and understand like they never have before in their life how much they matter to their creator and everything he's done to connect them back to him. There are Matthews all around us, folks. They sit in the cubicle next to you at work. They live in the house next door to you. They're the waitress who serves you faithfully at the place you go every time. They're the gas attendant that you see at the same gas station you go to to get gas every day. They're in your own family. And sometimes it's one question, just one ask away that means the difference between heaven and hell. Can I pray for you? Can I help you? Would you like to come to church with me? We have a very handsome pastor, right? I mean, you can throw that in if you have to. They'll say you're lying as soon as they step through the doors, right? Just these little, little questions because people are so often just one ask away. Do you know how I know that? Did you know that the suicide rate in our country, the country that's the most prosperous of all the countries in the world, the country where any dream can, can come to be reality, We've had an uptick of 33% in suicides in the last 20 years. Telling me this, that people don't feel like they matter. And let's partner with our God who loves each and every one of those people and let's just dare go out on a limb and ask a question to people who might just be one ask away from life or death. 
And not just on the outside of these walls, but when you're here on this location, any given Sunday, listen to me. If you're in the parking lot and you see somebody getting out of their car who doesn't look like one of us, go up to them, introduce yourself, and walk, walk in with them. When you see somebody standing out in the foyer and they look absolutely confused because they don't know where to take their kids or where to get where they need to go to, go engage them. When you're sitting by somebody in your pew and you don't know them and you don't know their story and they certainly don't know your story, just listen to me. Just do what Jesus did and meet people right where they are at. And here's what I promise you. You're not going to be alone when you do it because Jesus is already working on them. Amen? So let's pray about this this morning. Father, thank you that your kingdom is so big that everybody's welcome. That what we want to do is create an environment where people encounter Jesus and he changes them. Just like he's changed me. Just like he's changed Matthew. That's what he specializes in. Help us, Lord, not to be so fearful of an encounter or fearful of a reputation or fearful of what others might think or fearful of us reaching out to the thems. Help us, Lord, to see the bigger, pe- the bigger picture that there's only two people, those disconnected from you and those who are connected to you who will do anything to help people get connected back to you because people matter to you. Which people? All people. How much do they matter? More than we could possibly imagine. So, Lord, I pray that we will have people today asking you how they can partner with you in being on this search team to get the more Matthews of this world who are just one ask away into the kingdom of God. And we just bring them into an environment where they can encounter Jesus and we let you change them. So thank you, Lord, that you've given this responsibility to us I pray that here, at least at Bachelor Creek, I can't speak for any other church, Lord, but I can say in our day, on our time, on our watch, may it be said of us that at that church, everybody matters. And everybody is welcome. Thank you, Lord, for welcoming us into your kingdom. We pray, Lord, for a great harvest in the future. In Jesus' name, amen.